0: Hey, good morning, y'all. Uh, well, as Jeremy uh, just uh, said, thanks for the announcements today, bud. Uh, as Jeremy just said, we, um, we, I don't know why he said we. We're here. I'm here. And um, I am uh, one of the pastors here at Collective. And so what this means as me being the pastor or one of the pastors here is in just a moment, we're going to open the Bible and we're going to read it together And then we're going to discuss what is it saying and and what that means for us today, or at least try to discern what it means for us today, which I just want to acknowledge puts me in a, a weird category for most of you in your brains and just how you perceive this. Most of you operating and relating to me with the title of a role of pastor and me opening and teaching the Bible places me in a category with a deep amount of cynicism and skepticism. I'm not kidding, like cynicism and skepticism, if not outright villainy. And how I know this is this is how most pastors are portrayed in almost every single story that we watch or participate in. Whether it's The Righteous Gemstones or Footloose or uh, There Will Be Blood or just uh, the recent HBO Max, they just closed out the first season of The Last of Us. And the second to last episode had the, the episode opens with the character David doing what I'm about to do, <laughs> opening the Bible Reading it to a group gathered to sit underneath some kind of leadership or whatever that he has. And we all know within five seconds of seeing this guy just opening and reading the Bible, that's the villain. (laughs) Rain Wilson, also known as Dwight Schrute from The Office, tweeted on the episode. Uh, we'll, uh, We'll jump over the first sentence. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading from the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. Could there be a Bible-reading preacher on a show who's actually loving and kind? Yeah, thank you. Uh, This is, that's me, right? Like, that's not a bad guy. But here's the thing. So these stories in so many ways play as a thermostat of, or a thermometer, actually, a reading of culturally what the perception is of pastors. And these stories are part of a 20-year trend of this huge descent of Americans' trust in pastors and clergy. When asked on questions around honesty and ethics, clergy, pastors, we rank below Congress, men and women, and used car salespeople, men. Um, which if you work in used car sales, like that's, I'm not making, they made the assumption about your character, not, my, not me. Um, and here's the thing, as, as, as hard as that is, I, I don't know if I can blame, I, I can't say that the trend isn't based in, is, is based in nothing. Um, There has been a consistent trend over the past two decades, even going back a little bit further, of a regular rhythm of pastors showing themselves not as being trustworthy, not as being honest, not as being worth following, trusting, listening to. And the Bible being the primary means of which how they abuse and hurt people. So that's what I'm stepping into. And even more than that, just stepping into that, that's also been my own story. And this is not the place for Ryan's, like, therapy hour. But um, many of you that that know me know, I, I, over, from middle school, I mean, I I have more occasions now with pastors with narcissism, spiritual abuse, and pastoral malpractice than I can count on both hands. Like, not just like, oh, I saw that on Twitter. Like, I personally was a part of those communities and experienced that firsthand. And so, again, we're not going to go into all those, but... Over 10 years, being a part of churches and networks, where I saw time and again pastors were on marks of honesty and ethics were proven to not be trustworthy characters. And so I don't think I can blame the trend. I can't blame the last of us. But it also makes me wonder makes you wonder right now, like, what in the world is Ryan doing here? Like I, I wonder that a lot. On Sunday mornings, what am I doing, not just as a Christian, not just as a Christian who's committed to the local church, but a pastor? What am I doing here after seeing like there is an alternate universe version of Ryan that I am like a deconstruction coach on TikTok. Like that's what Ryan, that's, that's who I am and what I do. And yet here I am on Sunday morning with a Bible in my hands, standing up and participating in this story that I've seen go tragically wrong so many times. So the question is, why, why am I still here? Or for many of you, why are you still here? Like, you see the David story, you see uh, there will be blood, you know, you see these stories, the righteous gemstones, why are you still here? For me, I can speak for myself at least, that I think John chapter 10, what we're going to be looking at in just a moment, has been one of the great anchor points in my own story, in my own healing, along with a licensed counselor and lots of, like, long retreats of isolation and journaling and prayer. And some really restorative relationships, John 10, Jesus' words in John 10, have been the anchor point of healing for my soul, and also why I'm still doing this, why I haven't given up on the pastoral role. And so, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 11 is where we're gonna be today. In John chapter 10, verse 11, we're continuing in today, as you'll see behind me, the series that we've been in as kind of a lead up to Easter. And we're moving through John's gospel, where Jesus will regularly make these statements about his own identity, these I am statements. And in doing this, Jesus not only makes a claim about himself, but then he makes a claim about you and I. And today in John 10, he doesn't just make a claim about himself and a claim about you and me. He also makes a claim about the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the shepherds, or in Greek, as the word can be translated, shepherds or pastors, Jesus is situating, he's having a conversation about your identity and mine in the midst of a context about religious leadership gone awry. And so with that being said, if you've turned to John chapter 10, I want to invite you to join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures today. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them. He doesn't not just uh, leave them, he runs away. He leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. And this is the commandment that I've received from my father. Let's pray. Jesus, our good shepherd, we pray that today you would uh, take us deeper into your identity. Help us to find a deeper sense of who we are as we get a better picture of who you are. And I pray that you would just bring a, a, a word of healing through my words today. that in the midst of us feeling scattered and snatched, that good shepherd Jesus, you would come and you would gather up your flock today and you would carry them home. You speak, Holy Spirit, through your scriptures as we look at them together. In the name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, go and be seated, y'all. <clears throat> so uh, I have a bit of an apology. Over the couple of weeks before Chris Marlin was here last week, All of these good shepherd statements so far have been like these huge stories because it takes a while for Jesus to like, he kind of buries the lead. There's like whole conversations about, before he says, I'm the bread of life, we have a whole conversation about what you're hungering for. And it's like, you know, the whole chapter. Or what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? And we got to go all over. Jesus is great this week. He doesn't bury the lead at all. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Thank you, Jesus. Some of you guys are like, these sermon, the text, every single week has been so long. Jesus this week, He's not hiding anything. I am the good shepherd. This is the next identity statement that Jesus makes. And just to note, I am the good shepherd. Let's break this up into two parts. First is I am. For those of you that have been with us over the series, we know that when Jesus says I am in these moments, he's not simply just saying I am. He's getting at something far deeper. He's actually using... Um, from the Pharisees' perspective, the religious leaders' perspective, co-opting the divine name of God for himself. If you go back to the story of Moses in the burning bush, when God speaks out to Moses, he identifies, what is your name? Who are you, God? The one that's sending me, what's your name? And he says, "My name. tell them I am sent you. I am, I am. And so Jesus steps on the scene, and he keeps making these I am statements, these moments of claiming the divine identity for himself, claiming to be the creator God, the covenanting God of Israel. But if some of us think that maybe Ryan's reading too much into just two little words, this continues when he says, not just I am, but I am the good shepherd. All throughout the Old Testament, the good shepherd language is used and reserved for one particular character in the Bible. I'll give you a guess of of who that is. It's God. We just looked at last fall, Psalm 23. How does it open? The Lord is my shepherd. I am, is my shepherd. I have what I need. You'll see a couple of these behind me. Um, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. And what is it? It goes on to say, He leads me beside quiet waters, He lets me lie down in green pastures. He renews my life. He guides me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I won't feel right. But all of it is built on God is my shepherd. Throughout the scriptures, this is just three other examples, but uh, Psalm 80 verse one says, God is the shepherd of Israel who leads his people like a flock. Notice who sits enthroned between the angels. The one who is the shepherd equals the one who sits on a throne with the angels beside him. Isaiah 40 verse 11 talks about God as the one who protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. I love this imagery. Carries them in the fold of his garment. It's like Yoda in his backpack, like on Dagobah. Like he's like, he carries them with me. Maybe not, there's less backflips. But Ezekiel 34, we're gonna probably come back to this in a minute, but Ezekiel 34, 31, God says to Israel, you are my flock, the human flock, thank you. It's like, we're sheep? No, human flock of my pasture and I am your God. So when Jesus stands up and doesn't just say I am and claims the divine name for himself, but then identifies himself as the good shepherd for both him, a Jewish rabbi, talking to Jewish Pharisees with Jewish crowds listening in, they all understand exactly who he's claiming to be. There is no good shepherd. There is no beautiful shepherd. There is no royal shepherd other than God. And when he steps in and goes, I am, that's me. The shepherd God of Psalm 23 who leads you beside quiet waters, gives you rest, renews your life, guides you into paths of righteousness, is with you even in the darkest valley, that's me. The God who sits enthroned between angels, that I am, that's me. Jesus begins with this huge claim to his identity. He is God who has come to shepherd his people. But the interesting addition comes right after he says, I am the good shepherd in verse 11, is he says what? The good shepherd does what? lays down his life for the sheep. Now we showed a few of those examples from the scriptures, but Jesus is introducing a new theme here. We've got lots of biblical imagery of a shepherd leading his people, but we don't have one of a shepherd laying down his life. So Jesus is introducing something new into the metaphor. He's saying, it's me, I am, I am the divine shepherd. I am God, come to shepherd and guide you back to bring you home, to bring you into life. But there's this new dynamic of well, why must the shepherd lay down his life? If he's the good shepherd, what, why, why this need to lay down his life? It's a new introduction that uh, shouldn't just prompt our questions. It probably would have caught the attention of those listening. Well, why must the good shepherd lay down his life? Verse 12. The hired hand, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves the sheep and he runs away when he sees the wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters the flock. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. So notice, it's the picture that we have is the good shepherd, Jesus. God has come in Christ to shepherd his flock into a Psalm 23 life. And he returns to the sheep pen for his sheep, and he gets there, and the sheep are all gone have been scattered. The sheep pen is empty. The hired hands that he left in charge to guide and care for them, they've bolted for the hills. And as he takes in the sight that all of his sheep are gone, he hears the bleeding of his sheep being pulled off by wolves into the wilderness. This is the portrait of what, what Jesus is getting at here. The primary problem that the shepherd apparently must lay down his life for is the fact that his sheep have been, the language is, snatched and scattered. Stolen, snatched, taken away, exploited. That snatched word can be translated in so many interesting ways that you could just spend chewing on that. They've been exploited. They've been stolen. They've been taken away. They've been driven off. There's been a theft. And they've been scattered, driven out, sent away, isolated and alone and scared and fearful. Jesus comes for his flock. Jesus comes for humanity. In the past stories, Jesus has used the imagery of blindness or hunger to talk about the human condition. And today in this passage, he uses the imagery of humanity has been snatched and scattered. They've been stolen and driven off. And so the shepherd has come to give them life, but they're nowhere to be found. And he blames two individuals, two groups here for the fact that his sheep are gone. The first is the hired hand and the second is the wolf. So the hired hand, who, who is this? Based off the context and the passages of who Jesus is talking to is the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day. And so Jesus identifies the hired hand as being the primary group of the religious leaders of the day, who, as he says, don't care about the sheep. They're only interested in this for their own life and their own comfort. And as soon as the work gets too hard, they bolt. They're looking for the convenient role. They'll, sure, they'll, they'll hang out with the sheep as long as it's comfortable, as long as it doesn't cost too much. But the moment that the cost gets too high, the hired hand leaves. And he leaves them vulnerable and afraid and alone. And then the wolf comes in. Now, who is the wolf? The wolf is, uh, when you read throughout the scriptures and other commentators throughout history, the wolf is kind of like, if you ever saw the movie Annihilation with the nasty like mutant bear thing, that's like a human and a bear, like it's a weird mutant thing. It's nightmare fuel. I'm just telling you that right now. But the way that the wolf language gets used in scriptures is kind of like this mutant wolf where at times they'll look at the wolf and they'll talk about it like it's Satan. And then other times they'll look at the wolf and they'll talk about it as sin within a person and what they do and what they believe. And other times the wolf will be talked about as if it's the world, like the Roman empire or culture uh, coming in to consume and take down the church. And other times, but most often, it's used to talk about false teachers. Wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus calls them. Or uh, in Acts 20, Paul calls them these ravenous wolves who will seek to devour the flock. So you've got this mutant wolf thing that Jesus says, there's hired hands who are meant to be there to protect and guard for my flock. And what they have done is they've bolted and in has come this wolf to consume and to take down. And so depending on the context of whoever was reading this story, at certain times, they'll look at different parts of the wolf and they'll they'll focus on that. So in the first 300 years, the early church had all of this persecution, Christians being arrested and put to death. And so what happened was all of these pastors who would not only, well, what would happen is they would get arrested as a pastor and then to get their freedom, they would rat out their people who are the Christians in your church and they would give them the member list. So, do you know? So, the early church, they would read this story and they would go pastors who are hired hands who give their people over to the wolf, in this case, being the Roman Empire. In other cases, after Christianity was legalized, you had uh, this huge movement of all these people that became Christians, and it was free to become a Christian now. There was really no big cost to it. And so, the, the problem that they were facing was not the Roman Empire coming in and, and consuming and taking about the church, but sin within the people. And so there was a a regular wave of all of these pastors who would see sin and like these selfishness, these patterns within the people in their church and they weren't doing any form of discipleship or discipline when those things were happening. And so it was as if they saw the wolf in the situation and they said, that's just too difficult to deal with. And so you had all these churches that fell apart because of the selfishness of people because pastors were acting like hired hands. You see, they have this dynamic of the wolf and the hired hand that I've been thinking about all week. And um, one of the problems that we had in our house this past week is um, plumbing, which is great. Really fun issue to deal with all week long. But we had, um, when we, we we got our home, we did a couple of plumbing updates and stuff like that. A lot of it working with a handyman that we just was like recommended to us by someone that we don't trust anymore. Because <laughs> um, we, we get like an actual plumber that, like, comes in today, like, this week, and he's under the house, and he's showing pictures of the work that was done, and it just, I mean, it's, like, just duct tape stuff together, like, he's, like, literally, like, you can just touch pipes, and things fall apart. Uh, It's a huge leak underneath our house, and so all of, you know, so here we go, okay, well, there's, sorry, guys, no, like, college, you know, for you, Uh, like, this is, we got to redo the plumbing now, And, um, and so the whole thing is what has happened now is we have all this extra work that we have to come in and undo because of a plumber who is playing the easy game, playing the, what's the easiest way? And like, oh, the conflict. And I, we have a very small crawl space. So that's why I think he's just kind of like throwing like stuff at the, the problem. And, and I think what Jesus is getting at in the hired hand motif is there, there is a unique reality of pastors who will play the easy work as opposed to the deep and hard work. Like a, like a, like a handyman plumber is looking for, how do we just kind of keep things going the easiest way possible as opposed to doing the hard work that often means confronting the wolf around them and most often the wolf being coming in the form of false teaching. And so I've been thinking about my own story this week. Once again, again, this is not Ryan's therapy hour, but just a reflection on that I have found time and again that this, this motif of the hired hand and the wolves that then come in has been the consistent theme of most of the really unhealthy systems and churches that I've been a part of. You, you normally have a pastors that, that are hired hands because they're here for the size of the church or the pay of the church or the work of the church, and so they're doing what comes most comfortably. And then most often, the key leader within that, diet, within that system is the wolf. And there becomes this kind of interesting shift that happens over time where the hired hands quit fleeing the wolf and they start just kind of letting the wolf do what the wolf is gonna do. But because, once again, they're a hired hand, they don't wanna enter into the challenge and the difficulty of what needs to be done. And so I just, as I've been reflecting on that, I just have noticed most of what I would, we would now call spiritual abuse or most of the pastoral malpractice, most of the things that I'm in counseling Four usually comes down to one or two of the those dynamics. It was either a wolf or it was a hired hand. And normally it was a wolf because it was first a hired hand. I wonder for some of you who have experienced some of what I'm talking about for yourself. Maybe you don't have like you're like, man, Ryan's, Ryan's like what? I don't know who like who hurt him, like what happened. Like, I literally was like, I, I went through a whole thing where I was like, am I cursed? Because every church I keep going to, it implodes and falls apart. And it's not my fault, but it's like, I just am like the like, bad luck token, I guess, because I just kept happening. But so maybe that's not your experience, but for some of you, you've experienced some form of this. And so I just wonder, maybe it was a pastor who operated like a hired hand that didn't stand in and stand up for you when you needed them. Or maybe it was a pastor or a church leader who, operated like a wolf and there was a form of abuse, coercion. Maybe for some of you, it was just the wolf that was looking not to consume you in any other way than just to, just to see you as a consumable good in building their platform. For some of you, maybe it's not a pastor. Maybe if we just zoom out a little bit more on the shepherd, of just being an image of someone who's been tasked with caring and providing for and leading someone. Maybe the hired hand and the wolf didn't show up in the church for you, but it showed up in your home. Some of you had a a dad who was a hired hand. He was around until it got too hard and then he left and left you open to the dad's boyfriend's wolves that came in. Or maybe it was a coach or a teacher or a mentor. You see, I don't, I don't, Jesus is not, he's, he's, when he talks about the humanity as a people who have been scattered and snatched and stolen and taken away, and he's speaking to the heart of most of us, the most tender parts of our story. The moment when we looked for the person to be there for us and they weren't. The moment that we looked to someone that we thought was trustworthy that no longer was. And now it has left us looking at any time someone opens the Bible or stands into a role of authority or leadership in our lives with so much skepticism and cynicism. I can't trust you. Not because of you necessarily, but because of my whole story. I know how this is gonna go. And Jesus knows that's what he's stepping into, which is why the greatest, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's a little verse. You, you can read right over it, but it has been um, a breath prayer as I rethink through my story. It comes in verse 12. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd, he is not the shepherd. The hired hand is not the shepherd. I, I yeah. Thank you. Lily's with me. Of just like. The, <laughs> The, how, how necessary that is as you're, you're working through what's happened to you, whether that's a parent or a pastor or some other shepherd-like figure that you thought was going to be there that wasn't, and it led to you being scattered and stolen. That the first starting point is you have to first say, he is not the shepherd. She is not the shepherd. They are not the shepherd. And that allows us now to step back into, okay, Jesus, what does it mean for you to be the shepherd? To hear again what he has to say. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, he says again, I lay down my life for the sheep. So to those that have been stolen, to those that have been taken away, those who have been snatched and exploited and abused and neglected, Jesus' first thing is, I know you. And you know me. Last week, Chris Marlin talked about how Jesus knows your name. It comes right in the beginning of the the passage that we just read, where it talks about how the shepherd knows the name of his sheep. But here, Jesus is saying, not just that I know your name, but I know you. I know your story. I know what you've gone through, I know what you've suffered. And that language of knowing is more than just, I have a mental assent to like on paper, yeah, I see what you've gone through. It's a language of deep friendship, deep committed friendship. It's a language of, of a husband and wife relationship or a, or a father and son is literally the image that he pulls from us. That relationship of the father and the son which is the relationship between the triune God of the Father and God the Son in Jesus. That kind of deep knowing is the knowing that Jesus has, he has for you in the midst of your suffering and your pain, in the midst of what you've suffered. He knows it. Not, not as, not as a, a Wikipedia post about the, the story of you so far. He says, I, experientially, I know my sheep, I know what they've gone through, I've suffered with them. And he says, not only do I know them, but they know me. That they, I, we enter into this deep experience of who Jesus is, of knowing him. I love the, the knowing language. It's hard for us, I think, to sometimes get out of it being purely mental. And so that's why I love what Jesus does in verse uh, 27. You'll see behind me. My sheep hear my voice, and what? I know them, right? So he's picking back up on what we just read. And they follow me. So what does it mean to follow? They, they follow, to know him is to follow Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, we, we could run laps on this right here of what Jesus is getting at. So yes and amen. He has just promised eternal life for those who follow and know him. That's awesome. He is also just here claimed to have unity with the father. If the good shepherd and the I am images language wasn't enough, here he just says it outright. I and the father are one. We could do laps on that all day. But notice for Jesus, what does it mean for him to know you? It's to carry you, to hold you. The images that you have gone from being in the mouth of the wolf to now being in the tender arms of the good shepherd. To go back to that language of Isaiah, wrapped up in his garment and being carried by him. To be known by the good shepherd is to be carried by the good shepherd. For you in the midst of your loss, it's it's Ezekiel. I think this is, is this where I have Ezekiel 34? Oh man, we missed this. This is what I get. But here, jump down here. So here, this is great. We'll use this anyway. He's going after the bad shepherds. So just just flip the script. Make this. Opposite of what the good shepherd does. The bad shepherds have not strengthened the weak. They have not healed the sick. They have not bandaged the injured. They have not brought back the strays. They have not sought the lost. They ruled them with violence and cruelty. And they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. Do you see Jesus doing the scattered language from Ezekiel here? So if we just say that's the bad shepherds and we flip it, then what does it mean for him to know you and carry you? It's for you to strengthen you in your weakness. It's for you to heal you in the sickness, to bandage your injuries, to bring you back, to seek you when you are lost, to rule and guide you not with violence and cruelty, but with gentleness and patience to no longer scatter, but gather, to unify, to bring them close into his arms. In the midst of what you've gone through, scat, snatched and scattered as you may be, the good shepherd says, I know you, and that means I'm carrying you home. But this is incredible, but if we were to stop here, we would also be at a, um, we could have a very individualistic view of our relationship with the shepherd. But verse 16 He says, but I have other sheep who are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. So notice Jesus says, I'm going, I know my sheep, I'm going, I'm going to carry them home. And as I do that with enough sheep, I end up having a new flock that's been brought back together again, a new community. And he says, I must do this to bring what's been separated back together. Now in the context, it seems like Jesus is likely alluding to these sheep that aren't a part of his sheep pen to Gentiles. He's here with his Jewish people and he's going, man, I am here to bring Psalm 23 life for you. And so I'm gonna bring you back. Even though the Pharisees have snatched and scattered and let them go a bit, I'm bringing them back in. But guess what? I'm not just doing that for Israel. I'm gonna do that for the whole world. I'm doing that for Jew and Gentile. I'm doing that for the Samaritans. And the whole story of where the book of Acts goes is as Jesus resurrects from the dead, he sends his people out into the world, bringing everyone in on this one flock so that they might live and find life and healing and everything that we just looked at within this new flock, underneath this new shepherd. And so there's, I mean, you could just go to so many places here about the evangelistic intent, that the way that the good shepherd brings his sheep back that need to come home is actually through bringing sheep in, healing them, and then sending them back out. Jesus says it's a must for him, which means it's a must for those who follow him there are there are sheep who currently aren't in this room who Jesus the good shepherd must bring home but what Jesus brings them home into is not just a hey you got you know hurt by the wolf hey you got scattered and so this is just kind of a you know a rehabilitation center for you just come and you you rest here it is that but notice how does the good shepherd unify his flock they will listen to my voice This is language of following him like we looked at, language of obedience to him. Jesus is looking to bring all who have been snatched and scattered, but the way back home is by listening to his voice. And so this is why elsewhere in Ezekiel 34, but it's also a regular metaphor of Jesus, is it's like he's going out into the wilderness and he's grabbing everything with four legs. He's grabbing everybody and bringing them in. But then as he brings them back to the sheep pen, he then looks for the sheep and the goats. Ezekiel 34 talks about goats who get into the sheep pen, out in the pasture with the sheep, who are not here for the shepherd and do not listen to the shepherd's voice. And they, 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 uh, they tear up all of the grass and they, they, they murk up, they muddy the clean water for drinking. Part of the Jesus is a good shepherd, hear me, is he is gentle, he is gentle, he is lowly, he is patient. But with goats, he escorts them out of the sheep pen after a time. But Jesus as a good shepherd also knows that sometimes a goat and a lamb act a lot alike. But Jesus has patience. He has patience. Did you guys check what, what, I, what I mean by that? Okay. I thought it was overly poetic, but maybe not. <laughs> there is a difference between those who are not a part of the flock and those who are new to the flock. There is a difference between those who have been around and proven a, a pattern of not listening to Jesus and lambs who are learning how. And so part of the good shepherd's work is, man, I want to undo what the wolf has done. I want to undo what the hired hand has done, but I don't want to just leave you there. I want to lead you into more than what you currently have, but that's going to require that you listen to my voice. So Jesus says, I have come to know and carry my snatched and stolen flock, and I have come to gather those who have been scattered. And so the simple question is, Do you, do you know Jesus as the shepherd this way? Like, sure, I can get up here and say, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows what you're going through. But notice he said, not just that I know my sheep, but my sheep know me. Have you experienced Jesus carrying you in the midst of your wounds? Have you found Jesus healing you in the midst of your brokenness? See, the invitation isn't just that you know this mentally at a distance that Jesus knows you. The invitation, he says, is that you know him that you experienced Jesus this way. Have you found that? Similarly, are you listening to his voice? Is there something that Jesus is inviting you into? Whether that's clearly from scripture or something the Spirit's been prompting you to in your prayers? Are you listening to his voice? And as this sent out sheep, are you speaking his voice? Are you speaking his words to others? Are you inviting others to know the healing and the life and the goodness that the shepherd has for you? But we haven't dealt with that big question that I asked at the beginning. All this so far is like good, good shepherd stuff. But again, why, why must the good shepherd lay down his life? Well, what Jesus has said is his flock has been snatched and scattered through the laziness and the failure of the hired hand through the driving away and the pulling away of the wolf. And so in the same way that the Gospels don't, they really slow down on the story of Jesus' cross, but they don't give a lot of attention. That One author put it, it's not a a pornography of suffering in the Gospels. We don't spend all this time looking at like slowing down and every nail being driven in. And it's not overly, it just kind of happens and he was crucified. In the same way, we don't, What we know is there's something to go. The shepherd has come back. Let's just enter back into the story. The shepherd has come to his sheep pen looking for his flock, and they have been driven off and taken away by the wolf. And he goes, the shepherd's going to have to lay down his life. The image is that he goes out into the wilderness, and there, as he takes the sheep out of the wolf's mouth, lays down his life and dies in order to rescue his flock. Verse 14, oh, excuse me, not 15, verse 17. This is why the Father loves me. I and the Father are one. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So twice Jesus has said, The good shepherd lays down his life. The good shepherd lays down his life. And then here he says it three more times. For Jesus to be the good shepherd means he is going to have to lay down his life to bring his flock back. How does this play out? He's talking about the cross, but how does this play out on the cross that that he is bringing back? I thought the cross was about Jesus forgiving my sins and now you're talking about totally, Jesus absolutely goes to the cross to forgive you of sin. But part of what's also happening at the cross is that Jesus is going to confront the wolf, to show the wolf for all that the wolf is. And if you remember, I talked about Jesus knowing you in the midst of all that you've gone through, experientially knowing you. Jesus, one of the things that's happening on the cross is him giving himself over to the wolf in all of its faces, spiritually facing off with Satan, Culturally and politically, as he goes up against, it's the Roman Empire that puts him to death. And also religiously, spiritually, as it's the Pharisees that hand him over. At the cross, Jesus comes into knowing the deep levels of pain and hurt that comes through hired hand religious leaders who hand someone over to the wolf. And so Jesus is mocked, he's ashamed, he's beaten, lies are told about him, he's isolated, he's snatched and he's scattered. Jesus is stolen and driven off, taken outside of the city and put to death. And it's from that place, Jesus on the cross at the deepest place of yes, pouring out for forgiveness of sins, but also healing and empathy and being with you in the midst of all that you've gone through, whether that's religious leaders and pastors or your mom or your dad or a teacher or some coach. Jesus says, I know what it's like to have the very people that should be welcoming you and receiving you wanna put you to death. And it's from that place that this good shepherd picks us up and brings us home. And it's also from this place that Jesus goes, this is how you'll know a good shepherd. So to bring it back to the question at the beginning of this trend of pastors that aren't trustworthy, Jesus here gives a framework through his cross and through this teaching here of how you know a good, as the language that Peter uses in his language is a good under shepherd. What's a good local church pastor look like? They lay down their life for the sheep. No mention of how good they can preach a sermon, their organizational skills, how well they can pull off a Sunday gathering. They lay down their life for the sheep. They know the sheep and the sheep know them. They have a deep, intimate bonding with Jesus and the Father of knowing them. And they're committed to guiding people into listening to the voice of Jesus. It's actually pretty simple, and so I say all this to say one: this is here's the job description of what to expect out of Lorenzo, Ryan, and Isaac, and any other pastors that we ordain in the coming years. But knowing that LA is also so transient, I know most of you are not going to be here forever. When you move, when you look for a new church, do the pastors know the sheep, and the sheep know the pastors? Do the people know the does the church? Are they known? the way that people have said this is a shepherd has to smell like the sheep. Are they committed to listening to the voice of Jesus and guiding people under his voice? Is it platform thereafter or performance? Or is it just the simple work of pastoring Of laying down their life, saying no to what's comfortable and what's easy and being committed to the long haul beauty and goodness of a community that loves Jesus? Philippians chapter two. And see it behind me says adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited snatched it's the language actually right there instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity and when he being Jesus had come as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross it continues You can go to the next one, April. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the good shepherd. He doesn't stay in heaven off at a distance. He enters into the suffering and story of humanity. He enters into your story to meet you there, even death on a cross. And from that place, he risen again, as he puts it, I have the authority not just to lay down my life, but to take it up again, resurrection. To give you, as he said in 1028, resurrection life, eternal life, they shall not perish. This is what Jesus has for you. And so this is what, this is the pattern that Jesus displays. This is the pattern then that you look for in a good pastor. And unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, unfortunately, Philippians chapter two says that this whole Framework is not just what Jesus does. It's not just what pastors do. It's what you do. If Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one that lays down his life, then what it means to listen to him and follow him is to become a flock that is also known by our wounds, known by our laying down of our life for the sake of others. Of our own Confronting the hired hand both out there and within, of confronting the wolf both out there and within. This kind of self giving love, this kind of cross shaped existence is the life that Jesus wants to heal you in for. This is what Psalm 23 life looks like laying down of your life and resurrection power being unlocked into the world around you. I've been having a conversation again and again with, like, to the point that it's a trend, so now it's showing up on stage, with, um, in particular, Um, A lot of guys that are in the same stage of life as me, um, of husbands and or fathers. And we've been having that just every time the conversation happens. What are the challenges? What are the difficulties? What are we working through? Every single time we end up spinning around this language of what it means to be a cross-shaped husband. A cruciform husband. A laying down your life for the sake of your wife and your children husband. Maybe you're not a husband. Maybe you're not a father. What are the relationships that you have? What does it look like for you to be a cross-shaped sheep? For you to be a cruciform person who lays down your life for the sake of others? Again, why? Because this is what the good shepherd has done for you. And so... The whole invitation is to go back to the first teaching that we did at the beginning of the year, Philippians chapter three, just a couple chapters later. My goal is to know Jesus, to know him, to be carried by him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Laying down your life so that not just you may take it up again, but so that resurrection life would be unlocked in and around the world around you. That is the pattern of the good shepherd. And so Jesus is the good shepherd. And so for some of us, the main thing that we just need to hear today is what we consider the people that we've seen, the pastors and the parents and whatever we've gone through, he is not the good shepherd. He, they are not the shepherd. For some of you, I want to invite you taking a step deeper into what does it mean for Jesus to be the good shepherd for you? And then for some of us, to take a huge plunge and to go, what? There is some relationship in some area where my invitation is to lay down my life like Jesus. And where is that? Let's pray.